house fire crime scene. My son and his friends saw the woman run out. The tragic events that led to the death of a child and put a woman in hospital. A narrow escape from the Lytton fire. Go home, get your stuff and get out now. Nothing is stopping that monster. Witnesses recount the terror and warn this won't be the last fire they'll face. And a petition to punish the head of BC Emergency Health Services. Senior management has not taken responsibility for their massive incompetence. After hundreds of heat-related deaths, thousands call for the resignation of the COO. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A five-year-old boy is dead and a woman is recovering from stab wounds after a shocking family tragedy in Surrey. Some of the details of this story will be upsetting. The man believed to have caused the death of the child, the injuries to the woman and setting fire to the family home is also dead. Grace Key is live for us in Surrey tonight with more details. Grace? Yeah, this is still a very active crime scene. As you can see behind me, the house remains behind yellow police tape and investigators are still here at the scene. Now, police have not revealed how exactly everybody is related, but according to neighbours, it was a husband and wife who lived here with their five-year-old son. It's a heartbreaking end to what police say was a domestic violence incident. When Surrey firefighters put out the flames, they found a five-year-old child dead. The cause of death is under investigation. Before the fire broke out, a man living next door says the mother ran to his home, banged on the door, and used his phone to call 911. He said she had an apparent stab wound on her neck. Another neighbour describes what unfolded. My son and his friends saw the woman run out and... Uh, soaked in her blood soaked they said it was so thick holding her neck I wish I was there because I would have helped her at about 9 15 Monday night Surrey RCMP were called to the home on 94th Avenue near 154A Street the suspect in the stabbing allegedly set the house on fire and fled in a red Subaru before police arrived I was having a barbecue with the group of friends and my neighbor actually yelled to me there's a fire in your cul-de-sac so we ran to the front the house was fully involved. My buddy and myself, we ran to the front door. The front door was open, which was unusual. Anyway, we, we yelled inside if anybody was in there. At that time, the police and the firefighters were arriving and they kind of chased us away. But there's no way we could have got into that house. It was fully involved. About 25 minutes later, it's believed the stabbing suspect jumped off the Portman Bridge, leaving his vehicle on the bridge deck. Believed to be dead, Coquitlam RCMP have been searching for the man's body in the Fraser River. We do believe that this is an incident that's isolated, related to members of the same family. Uh, we do believe that it is... Um, associated to a domestic incident. Neighbours say they sometimes heard yelling coming out of the house. Another spoke to the five-year-old boy outside about an hour before the fire. It's just sad. That's all that goes through my head. It's just the devastation of how this can happen in any neighbourhood. So the stabbing victim, a 42-year-old woman, is recovering in hospital. I hit the integrated uh, homicide investigation team, is working with uh, Surrey's RCMP serious crime unit on this investigation. Back to you. All right, Grace Key in Surrey. Thank you, Grace.
Now turning to the wildfire situation in this province, Premier John Horgan traveled to the interior today to get a first-hand look at the devastation in Lytton. Aaron MacArthur is live near Lytton, and Aaron, the Premier was met by criticism that his government has fallen short in helping fire victims. Yeah, Sophie, the, the Premier declining to implement a provincial state of emergency, saying it's just not needed at this point. People on the ground here south of Lytton wonder what it's going to take to get their needs met. It's been nearly a week since flames tore through the village of Lytton. People living through six days of stress and anxiety, the build-up taking a toll on everyone. What really stands out is the fear of people's faces when they're running. That's what stands out. That look. That look. It's kind of blank. Help is arriving. 40 more firefighters from BC Tuesday and another two-unit crews from New Brunswick staging to be ready to fight the Lytton Creek Fire Wednesday. The fire now mapped at just more than 7,700 hectares. The crews reporting progress on laying guards down, but the danger is far from over. When a provincial state of emergency is, is required, uh, that's based on the advice and the expertise of the men and women in the BC Wildfire Service. And I have every confidence uh, that when they uh, say it's time to, to put one in place, we will put one in place. The Thompson-Nicola Regional District has arranged for a tour for residents of Lytton. People will be able to enter the exclusion zone via bus on Friday and tour what's left of their community. One of the questions here is what happens once the villagers assess the damage. It will take months, if not years, to rebuild this community. I know that the people behind me at the fire centre are working uh, every minute of the day uh, to contain not just the fires there, but right across the province. And I'm confident that uh, they're doing everything that they can. So I have a great deal of uh, concern and I share that with them. But I am confident that everything that can be done is being done from this centre here in Kamloops. Despite the efforts of the provincial and regional governments, many here say not enough was done in the days immediately following this tragedy. Communications, especially with the Indigenous people, have been almost non-existent. The support is coming from the community. You know, just about anything we want, some community down there will have it here now. You know, whereas if it's any corporation or government or something, they just, they don't care. It's reality. Yeah. Concerning now for everyone south of Lytton, the danger still posed by trains. Tuesday, freight moving along the CP tracks on the east side of the Fraser River. CN actively repairing its track caused by last Wednesday's fire. Now the fire danger is certainly far from over. Fire crews did have a, a good day here in the Lytton area, but the wind has picked up, the temperature is warmer than it was, and there are fires uh, cre uh, being created all over the province. Just getting a tweet from the BC Wildfire Service, there's a new fire on Mount Harper, which is about two kilometers south of Paul Lake, that's just north of Kamloops. It's being classified as out of control. Right now still small, four personnel and three helicopters responding. But this is the beginning of July. It's going to be a long summer, and a lot more of this situation will develop. Sophie, Chris, back to you. So many more weeks to go. All right, thanks for that, Aaron. And as Aaron just highlighted, the number of wildfires across B.C. in this early fire season continues to grow.
That's after a number of lightning storms passed through the interior, setting new fires in the bone-dry brush. The number of active fires across B.C. now tops 200, 206 to be exact, maybe 207 based on what Aaron said. That includes wildfires of note, 13 of them that pose a risk to public safety. 41 of the new fires sparked in the last two days, the majority caused by lightning. Compared to the seasonal average, uh, we are significantly higher in terms of number of fires and hectares burned um, for the 5, 10, 15, 20, and 25-year average. The federal government is sending the military to B.C. to help move equipment and, if needed, get people out of fire zones. Well, people in the Fraser Valley are rolling up their sleeves for a COVID-19 shot at one of two beachside vaccination clinics. Can't complain. So nice. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. <laughs> Crescent Beach in South Surrey providing a scenic backdrop today for anyone 12 years and older still in need of their first dose. Fraser Health officials taking advantage of the popular destination and the summer weather to make vaccines more accessible. We're, we are encouraging people to get vaccinated. We know that um, it's key to that uh, community immunity um, and um, putting the pandemic um, in the past as soon as we can. A similar beachside clinic was also offered at Cultus Lake. And here's a look at the latest COVID-19 numbers for B.C. We have 46 new infections over the last 24 hours, bringing B.C.'s total to 147,797. 602 of those cases are active. 87 people are in hospital, 22 patients in the ICU. And thankfully, again, no new deaths to report today. Keith Baldry joins us now with more details on our projected milestone dates, Keith, when it comes to our vaccination timeline. Yes, and we're talking about herd immunity, the point at which enough of us are vaccinated, the, the virus literally has no host bodies left for it to thrive. But what is herd immunity? Is it 70 percent, 80 percent, 85, 90 percent? There's some disagreement on exactly what that level is. But here's a timeline of what to expect with two doses. That's when we will achieve full herd immunity. Right now, today, 37 percent of us have had two doses. But it's climbing about eight percentage points a week, which means we'll hit 80 in mid-August and 80 85% in late August. Going from 80 to 85 will be very quickly. And here's really hoping this is just potentially could hit 90% and up as of September. So things are happening very rapidly on the second doses. About 85% of all the doses every day are second doses. Our first dose right now is 78%, as I've been reporting for a few, a few days now. That's inching up very slowly, one percentage point a week. Second doses, eight percentage points a week. So hopefully by the end of August, we are at that herd immunity level. Uh, no reason to think we're not going to get there. One caveat to this with the eight-week interval between the first and second dose, that may slow down a little bit the administration of the second doses in August. But things right now are looking very good at getting that herd immunity status at the end of August or early September. Thankful to be trending in the right direction at least. Keith, yeah. thanks very much. A shocking find on the shores of Shuswap Lake. The remains of a dog that died a cruel death. And now the search is on for a suspect. What to look for next on the News Hour. The Prime Minister's visit to Saskatchewan and the document he signed that gives some power back to the Cowessus First Nation. And how the pandemic doesn't seem to apply to those who have private planes. That's later. 
Right now, though, police in the shoe swap are investigating what they believe might be a deliberate act of animal cruelty. Now, before we go any further, a warning. Some of the details in this story are disturbing. Megan Turcato has more on how the dog was found and the appeal for information to track down its owner. I've been a police officer in the province for 21 years and I haven't seen anything like that. An unsettling discovery by boaters on Shuswamp Lake, who called police in Sycamuse on July 1st to report a dead dog in the water a kilometre west of the Brune Bridge. Odd and disturbing uh, details about this is that the animal had two, uh, two lines attached to it. Police say the dog was tied to both an anchoring device and a pole on the shore, in an area hard to access except by boat. So the animal was in uh, fairly deep water where it... Uh, where it couldn't, uh, couldn't touch bottom, it couldn't reach shore. And uh, it looked like somebody went through some, uh, some effort and some, uh, some organization uh, to drown this animal. Officials aren't certain the dog wasn't actually dead before entering the lake. But the head of the Sycamus detachment believes that's unlikely. I can't think of any reason why someone would, uh, would do that to an animal that's already deceased. Like, uh, in what fashion would any uh, reasonable person dispose of an animal that way? Uh, in my mind, this is just a, a, an overt uh, act of animal cruelty, and it's, uh, it's, it's quite disturbing and, and frankly disgusting uh, to see. The grizzly discovery in Shuswamp Lake is also being investigated by the BC SPCA. It's too early to say if it is indeed um, a deliberate act. If this is a deliberate act of cruelty, I have no idea why someone would do this. Who in the right mind would inflict this type of cruelty upon an animal. The maximum penalties would be a $75,000 fine and or a prohibition from owning animals and up to two years in prison. Unfortunately for those investigating what happened on the lake, there are limited clues. No tattoo or microchip that would help ID the owner. It's so badly decomposed. We can't tell the breed. We can't tell the color. It's just really impossible right now. The only description, a medium to large dog wearing a red collar. Anyone with information is asked to call police or the BCSPCA. Megan Tricato, Global News, Sycamuse. Up next, a big win against BC gangs. The drugs you see behind me today are one of the largest seizures we've had in VPD in quite some time. Where the drugs were being made and the startling way they're being distributed on the street. And after BC Emergency Health Services withered in the heat wave, leading to many suspected heat-related deaths, calls get louder to punish the person in charge. Crews are on scene to final clearing stages here of an earlier crash involving five vehicles northbound on 184th Street at Fraser Highway. From home to car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Surrey. The special stories that shape our province, as suggested by our viewers. This is BC with Jay Durant. Real people, real stories. On Global News Hour at 6. Vancouver police are showing off the proceeds of a major drug bust with a street value that runs into the millions of dollars. The operation was run out of a couple of downtown condos. And as Amadagahi shows us, there was a surprising way those drugs were being distributed. The drugs you see behind me today are one of the largest seizures we've had in VPD in quite some time. 
In street value, what you see here is worth $4 million, now in the hands of police instead of criminals. We had $320,000 in cash seized, 13 kilograms of fentanyl, 11 kilograms of crystal meth, 8 kilograms of benzodiazepine. Uh, we also had 5 kilograms of our more traditional uh, cocaine. And amongst all of that, an industrial press, but not for tablets. An actual press that they're using to press these drugs into kilogram quantities for resale. The drugs were found and seized by investigators from units at two condo buildings in the downtown core. I always like to highlight that for the public and for condo owners. When we have this type of operation in a condo building, you're, uh, you can get contamination in your pipes, hallways, etc. You've got some amateur gang member that's looked on the internet how to do it, how to buff it and cut it and stuff. These guys didn't go to UBC for eight years, right? Police are suspecting this was a major operation with a unique delivery system. These drugs were being packaged and taken via taxi to various locations throughout the city and the lower mainland for resale. It's not clear what the fallout may be from a drug seizure of this size, but experts say with all the gang activity in the lower mainland, this may just be a drop in the bucket. And they are concerned it will be months until charges are laid, if at all. The great work by the police in interdicting uh, this supply is fantastic. But those individuals that are responsible need to be held to account. This arrest needs to be a deterrent for others. A 52-year-old man from Burnaby and a 21-year-old man from Vancouver were arrested, but released pending further investigation. Amadagahi, Global News. Surrey RCMP are investigating a gang-involved shooting in the Fleetwood neighborhood. Shots rang out just after 9 p.m. Monday night near 156th Street and 83rd Avenue. There are reports several bullets hit a home and a vehicle. A dark-colored Chrysler 300 was seen speeding away from the scene. Officers then found the same vehicle torched near 194th Street and 16th Avenue. Police say the occupants of the home are tied to the ongoing Lower Mainland gang conflict. Anyone with information or dash cam footage is asked to call Surrey RCMP or Crime Stoppers. A man has now been charged in a stabbing incident that sent two Vancouver police officers to hospital. It happened around 10 Monday morning when police were called to a BC housing apartment near Kiefer and Gore in the Strathcona neighborhood. Police were responding to calls that a man had allegedly grabbed a two-year-old and was holding the child in a suite. Two officers got into a physical struggle with the suspect. Both were stabbed and a third officer injured his hand. Both have since been released from hospital. 59-year-old Gerald Jack Gates has now been charged with one count of unlawful confinement and two counts of aggravated assault on a police officer. The suspect's next court appearance is Friday. He will remain in custody. The chief operating officer of the B.C. Ambulance Service has lost the confidence of the rank and file. A petition is circulating to have Darlene McKinnon fired for her inadequate response to extreme heat. The anger erupted after McKinnon's interview with Global News, with many voices calling her portrayal of the service insulting and delusional. Jordan Armstrong now with a frustrated paramedic who started it. Executives need to stand up. They need to take accountability, uh, acknowledge their part in this mass casualty incident. They need to apologize unreservedly, unreserved, and they need to resign. And if they won't resign? 
If they won't resign, then the Minister of Health needs to take the appropriate action and terminate them for their gross incompetence. We'll call her Marilyn. We're protecting her real identity for obvious reasons. She's an experienced Lower Mainland paramedic who's launched a petition demanding immediate change at the top of her organization. I have never seen paramedics and dispatchers as angry uh, as they are right now. Everyone is absolutely livid and disgusted with the response from BC Ambulance. The response to and lack of planning for the heatwave crisis in which hundreds of British Columbians died. Desperate families called 911 for help. And that help was delayed, sometimes by hours, or never arrived. Last week, the COO of BC Emergency Health Services offered an apology. We know some people have waited too long for a response. But Darlene McKinnon also outraged many on the front lines when she added this. I think that we've done a very good job in the response. Well, my jaw hit the floor. Uh, I felt sick. I felt... Angry. Angry because she says everyone knew the dangerous heat was coming. Her and the rest of the senior management team were warned of this heat wave, were warned amply by the employees of the potential for massively increased call volumes, and uh, they ignored us. They did nothing. Marilyn says BC Ambulance needs to be taken out of the Provincial Health Services Authority because, in her words, it's not a hospital and it shouldn't be run as such. She wants paramedics to be better compensated. Adding something as simple as a lighter, more breathable summer uniform would go a long way in improving morale. We have a little pattern. She has this direct message for Health Minister Adrian Dix. You can't sweep this under the rug anymore. This has come to a head. Hundreds of people have died. Properly fund the ambulance service or your legacy as a health minister will be tarnished. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Some new clues have been found in the search for a Vancouver man who's been missing for more than eight months. Back on October 10th, 25-year-old Jordan Natterer left Vancouver for a planned hiking trip in Manning Park. He was then supposed to go to a family gathering, but never showed up. His vehicle was later found at a trailhead in the park, but a major search failed to find him. On Sunday, some belongings thought to be Natterer's were found in a remote, hard-to-reach area and now an RCMP helicopter and the Princeton search and rescue team are scouring that zone. Coming up, celebrity travel in the time of COVID. How Drake and other celebrities haven't slowed down a bit during the pandemic. Good evening. Final clearing stages of a multi-vehicle accident here in Langley, southbound on 200th Street at Willowbrook. Just one vehicle left, about to be towed away. Is buying a home still possible? CIBC Mortgage Advisors will show you how. With a plan unique to your ambition, they'll help find your home. CIBC Mortgages, ambitions made real. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above what was a crash in Langley. An historic agreement has been signed on the Cowess' First Nation in Saskatchewan, the site where 751 unmarked graves were revealed on the grounds of a former residential school. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe were both in attendance. 
signing over control of children and care to First Nations leaders. Last month, Cowess's First Nations said it wanted to assert its rights for children and families in need of help under Bill C-92. The community east of Regina and all others were stripped of that right in 1951. The Prime Minister says he's working with other Indigenous communities across the country to do the same. Today is a historical day because we never gave up our sovereignty to our children. And today, with the Prime Minister of Canada and the Premier of Saskatchewan, we are going to sign a coordination agreement that will ensure that as we move forward, kids get the support they need and the protection they need driven by their own communities in their own languages, in their cultures, that no kids finally will be removed from the communities that they are part of. I can confidently say that my appointment is a historic and inspirational moment for Canada and an important step forward on the long path towards reconciliation. The Prime Minister announcing Mary Simon as Canada's first Indigenous Governor General. Simon is a prominent Inuk leader who was formerly the Canadian Ambassador to Denmark. She is also an officer of the Order of Canada. Her appointment follows former Governor General Julie Payette's resignation after a scathing workplace conduct review. Simon says her vision for the role is to build a country that works together. Well, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, the federal government has asked Canadians to stay home and avoid all non-essential travel. But as it turns out, some wealthy Canadians have been flying abroad. Global's Redmond Shannon has more on the pandemic privilege of private jets. There are few private jets anywhere as distinctive as the Boeing 767 used by Drake. While most Canadians have been hunkered down at home during the pandemic, many wealthy Canadians have been busy making the most of their access to private jets. Data on the flight tracking website ADSB Exchange shows Air Drake made four Caribbean trips during the pandemic, including one flight from Hamilton, Ontario, while the province was under a stay-at-home order. The data does not indicate who was on each flight. Drake's publicist declined to answer questions about who was on the flights and whether those passengers ever stayed at a quarantine hotel on return. Since March 2020, the federal government has urged Canadians to avoid non-essential travel, but the definition of essential is left up to the individual. The government, in describing us as only doing essential travel, never gave any guidelines as to what essential was. Earlier this year, Drake was reportedly shooting a music video in the Bahamas. A global news analysis also looked at the jet regularly used by Cirque du Soleil founder Guy La Liberté. During the colder months of the pandemic, it made six round trips to Tahiti, where La Liberté owns a resort. A spokesperson for La Liberté wouldn't comment on his travels, but said Guy and all guests on the plane scrupulously respected sanitary measures and quarantines. However, unlike commercial passengers, it's possible they and many other private jet users availed of rapid testing services, getting their negative results before they could even check in to a hotel and allowing them to quarantine entirely at home. 
For full details on those flights and others, read the full story on globalnews.ca. Redmond Shannon, Global News. With a lot of pressure to transition away from fossil fuels, BC is doubling down on hydrogen as a big part of our green economy. BC has gone down this road once before with a fleet of 20 hydrogen fuel cell buses brought into service during the 2010 Winter Olympics. They ran for four years, but the pilot program ended with reliability issues and a higher than expected maintenance cost. But Bruce Ralston, Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation, believes hydrogen has a lot of potential to help BC meet climate targets. BC's new hydrogen strategy includes 63 actions for government, industry and innovators to help bring BC hydrogen power to market. Renewable hydrogen will be a critical part of our achieving clean energy and climate goals. Hydrogen can be used in fuel cells to reduce emissions from transportation or injected into the natural gas grid to displace fossil fuels to heat our homes and businesses. Over the next five years, the BC Hydrogen Strategy will continue to pilot hydrogen-powered transportation and build out refueling infrastructure. BC will establish a regulatory framework to encourage only the greenest forms of hydrogen production. More details are available on the BC government website. In Health Matters tonight, the World Health Organization is warning countries to slow down on easing pandemic restrictions. The head of the emergency program at the WHO says the virus is active in many parts of the world and the international community should prepare for a possible new wave this fall. Countries in South America are still reporting one million cases every week, while Europe recorded half a million new cases over the last seven days. In Russia, coronavirus deaths hit another daily record today with authorities reporting 737 more fatalities. Last week, the WHO's Africa director warned the virus was rapidly spreading across the continent. I think overall we've made a very premature run rush back to full normality. And I think we're going to pay a price for that because we're not there with vaccination. The variants are really there. Um, and we haven't protected enough people. And I, and I honestly think that we need to think our way through this, that we're, we're opening up way too quickly for the epidemiologic situation and the risks associated with that. With the easing of COVID restrictions and more people being out and about, the need for blood is also climbing. Canadian Blood Services says it needs 23,000 blood donors from all across Canada to July 31st to replenish the supply. The service says that as restrictions have eased, donation centers have seen a drop in attendance rates and appointment no-shows at the same time as demand ramps back up. We need about 4,000 donors here in BC up until the end of July, and that will continue right through to the end of the summer. The need for blood is rising, partially because of increased demand and hospitals resuming um, procedures, but also there have been some missed and unfilled appointments, and so we're just encouraging donors to come out and book all the available appointments. To make an appointment to give blood, call one 888 donate or book online at blood.ca. Up next, sea life suffering in the heat. No one has seen anything like this around Vancouver. Estimates that as many as a billion creatures died in a scorching low tide. And in sports, the pain of injury time for the Vancouver Whitecaps and how they can avoid such crushing losses.
You're watching Global News Hour at 6. The extreme heat wave that hit the province last week might have killed as many as a billion animals that live along our seashore. UBC researchers say creatures like mussels, clams, sea stars and snails were cooked alive in the heat. As Ted Chernecki reports, the mass die-off is expected to impact water quality and other marine life throughout the summer and beyond. Almost all these have died. UBC's Professor Chris Harley is back on Kitts Beach surveying and logging the damage to marine life caused by last week's heat wave. He estimates that up to a billion sea life animals may have died when a strong low tide exposed clams, mussels and starfish to the midday sun. As far as I'm aware, and this is also from talking to people who've lived in Vancouver for decades, no one has seen anything like this around Vancouver in their lifetimes. The brightest yellow in this infrared image shows how the intense heat of 42 Celsius killed sea life, especially those animals facing south or straight up. Sea life facing north fared better. Beachgoers could smell it. When you have a big die-off like this, the scavengers can't eat them quickly enough to process all of that extra meat, and so it just sits rotting in the sun. And so if you have been to a local beach in the past week or two and noticed that awful low tide smell multiplied by a hundred, that's the smell of all the animals that have just died. One of his colleagues called it the smell of climate change. Since about the late 70s, the average ground temperature worldwide has been climbing steadily, up almost 2 degrees Celsius. As we've already seen in Australia's Great Barrier Reef, for example, a water temperature change of just a degree or two is all it takes to kill coral. Here it was air temperature that killed, and like most ecosystems, there's a ripple effect when something changes that suddenly. So losing that habitat is going to be a big deal for the biodiversity on the shoreline as a whole. Mussels might recover in a couple of years, but some clams can be decades old and won't recover for years. And again, this is a situation all the way up and down BC's coast. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Tough, tough to hear, but we, you know, you know it's happening and there's more proof. Okay, let's see what's going on in the short term related to our weather. And boy, it was scorching walking across the courtyard up here in Burnaby today, Yvonne. Yeah, hot out there with many spots. The Humidex feeling closer to 30 degrees and also hazy. And that's all from the smoke sets throughout the interior. Now, here's a quick snapshot of the numbers that we're still seeing, especially in towards the interior where the heat warning remains in effect. And it's really the overnight lows that are only dropping between 17 and up to 20 degrees. We can see that even extending along the north coast. That's inland and the Smoky Skies Bulletin still in effect. The central interior and much of the southern half will continue to see that smoke or be impacted but over the next few days. Here's a smoke forecast we can anticipate. We may still see a bit of haze across the region and that'll funnel in towards the south coast. But here's what we're tracking and the big concern, a look ahead for tomorrow, will be for the afternoon and early evening. We've got the risk of thunderstorms and that'll be across the southern interior and the southeastern corners, the Columbia and Kootenai, where the big concern will be very strong winds. We could see hail produced with these thunderstorms and the potential for some dry lightning. We've had hot and dry conditions. So we'll be keeping a close eye and that's the timeline as we get in through the day tomorrow. Now the northern half could even see a bit of drizzle, more cloud cover, but it's inland that we still have the heat. The heat warning is in effect. Central interior looks to remain dry and then all the instability will be across the southern half and the timing once again will be for the afternoon and early evening and temperatures still getting closer to 30 degrees. Whistler will see that potential, the risk of thunderstorms and then along the south coast we've got a bit of a change as we get in towards the evening where we could see more cloud cover and even Metro Vancouver could get 
a slight chance for some drizzle. It'll be li little in terms of precipitation. A few clouds in the mix will be on Thursday, and then it heats up if you're making plans for the weekend so far. Temperatures soaring once again away from the water up to 30 degrees. Tonight's weather window, spectacular. This one captured over Green Lake by David. Guys? Wow. Look at that lightning bolt. All right, thanks very much. Christy sure picked a good week to take off with a <laughs> forecast like that. Squire is here now. There was some um, celebrating on Commercial Drive today, Squire. Yes, there was. <laughs> and I'm, I got to figure out where Danish people and English people hang out for tomorrow's uh, game. London pub. London <laughs> pub for All English right. fans. Not sure about the Danish people. <laughs> All right. Uh, allowing goals late in games has become a problem for the Whitecaps this year. Uh, and we have to be better. We have to be better. And when injury, injury time comes... It's happened three times in recent games, and it's costing the Caps valuable points. Also tonight, why the Okanagan cherry harvest could be the pits this year. Squires here with uh, sports and, and trying to solve a problem with the Whitecaps. There always seems to be a problem with the Whitecaps. Mm -hmm. The problem right now is late in games. Tomorrow they'll play another game with their billet family, Real Salt Lake, the team that's letting the Whitecaps use their facilities to be their home away from home before they can come home. The last time they played Salt Lake, they collapsed in injury time, allowed two goals and lost 3-1. I don't know what it is with soccer. It seems to me, though, a lot of goals are scored in injury time. You see a decent share of goals when the referee has added time for stoppages. Teams get desperate and the other teams play scared. And that's been the case for the Whitecaps. Stoppage time has stopped them from getting more points. Injury time has been painful to the Vancouver Whitecaps this year. On Sunday, a possible 2-1 win over Dallas was given away four minutes into extra time. And we do mean given away. Dallas doesn't score, we scored. Yes, it was an own goal, which leads to the question, why have the Caps blown some games this season just before the final whistle is blown? Sometimes we want to win too much or we want the point too much that we become a team that is afraid of losing. So now we're defending everything in our box and we're giving territory to, 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 to the opponent. Not playing aggressive when you have a lead or the game is close is a problem in a lot of sports. We see it happen in hockey. We've seen it happen in football and, of course, in soccer. It's a mindset to stop attacking and start defending. And it's a recipe for disaster. We need to keep playing in a way that we're able to sustain those, those minutes by us doing the right pressure and having the ball and not backing off. Because if we do that, um, we'll be able to deal with the injury time much better. Tomorrow's game against Real Salt Lake is on AM 7.30, starting with the pregame show at 6 o'clock and... Speaking of that radio station, AM 730 and play-by-play -play broadcast, we are happy to say all BC Lions games, regular season and playoffs, will be on AM 730 this year with Julio Caravetta and Bob Marjanovic doing the broadcast. Incidentally, the BC Lions start training camp this weekend up in Kamloops. First regular season game 
is exactly one month away, August 6th, against Saskatchewan. The uh, Fraser Valley Bandits of the Canadian Elite Basketball League will be the first professional team in B.C. to have fans to watch games since the pandemic took hold last year. The Bandits game on uh, July 14th against Guelph will allow a maximum of about 3,500 fans at the Abbotsford Centre. The last time Fraser Valley was allowed to play in front of people was August 15th, 2019. A small car brings the ball out for Italy and Spain. It's driven by a man who is four inches tall, and he's a very good driver as well, I've been told. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Anyway, Italy and Spain, this was a good game, and it went uh, a long, long time. Italy had the 1-0 lead, and then Spain would tie it on a goal by Alvaro Morata in the 80th minute. Then they would play extra time and nobody would score. Then they would go to penalty kicks. They both missed their first. Let's pick it up now. 2-2. Federico Bernadetti. He will score to make it 3-2 for Italy. But Alvaro Morata, who scored in the game, gets stopped by Donnarumma. The Spaniard fans know, or the Spain fans know, this is pretty much ball game. Jorginho scores the winner. Italy will play either Denmark or England, who play tomorrow. Well, what a great way for Montreal to stay alive in the Stanley Cup final last night, scoring an overtime goal by Josh Anderson after Montreal had to kill off a four-minute high-sticking penalty to Captain uh, Shea Weber. But here's a scary stat for Montreal fans. The Tampa Bay Lightning have not lost two straight playoff games since 2019. They have won 13 straight after losing a game in the postseason. To Wimbledon, where uh, Ash Barty of Australia was taking on fellow Australian Ajla Tomlanovic. Barty won the first set 6-1. And she was strong in the second set as well. In fact, one of these ladies was going to become the first Aussie to reach the semifinals on the women's side since 2000. No Australian woman has won Wimbledon since 1981 when Yvonne Gulagon won it. But Ash Barty is number one So she has a good chance to end that drought. And of course, tomorrow we have the two Canadian guys playing their quarterfinal matches. Felix Auger-Aliassime and Denis Shapovalov. And as we said last night, if things went well, if they surprised everyone, they could meet in the final. That would be be fun. Yes, that would be. Imagine. CanCon. Yeah. Well, exactly. I have to imagine it until then. Thanks, Squire. All right, what's coming up? Okanagan fruit growers forced to cherry pick through their crops this year. We're back with that and more. Well, we all know the Okanagan for its amazing fruit crops, but thanks to last week's record-breaking heat wave, some are at serious risk. Global's Darian Matassa Fung has more on the damage to local cherry crops and how it's a big hit for growers and eaters alike. I don't know what should we do. Okanagan cherry growers are suffering as the heat dome scorched many of their cherries, which should be ready for picking. The constant 40-plus degree weather recently has wilted and shrunk many of their cherries. We think maybe 50% good, but now it's gone. And we not know about the, because of what I look in my experience, my thinking the next variety coming is the lapin is gone too. Karma Gill, owner of Gill Orchards, says he's lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. To my thinking, I have the $800,000, right? Because the first time I got the good crop, I 
totally so far I looking lost. So about an eight hundred thousand dollar, right? Okay. It's a devastating blow to the cherry industry as it already has had two bad years in a row. The BC Cherry Association's president says it's extremely disappointing as the season had a lot of optimism before the heat wave. In just the last few years with uh, 2019, we had excessive rain, uh, you know, just before harvest and during harvest. 2020, we were kind of, uh, you know, frozen out with cold, uh, cold snap that came through in, in, Jan in January of 2020. So we were uh, really hoping to avoid the cold, which we did uh, for 2021. And, um, you know, with the crop that was on the trees, uh, it was one of the, the nicest crops that I've seen in, in several, several years. So there was a lot of optimism. And, and then this uh, this heat wave kind of really caught uh, everyone off guard. Not only are the Okanagan cherries being burned, the ones that are surviving have been severely reduced in size. Something cherry growers lament as larger cherries are their money makers. This heat also is where we've noticed that the size is down. So we, we actually, for the export markets, make our make our most money on larger fruit. And it just seems like we're not going to get the size. At this point, it's hard to tell if the later variety of cherries will be as damaged as the current crop. Growers are holding out hope that those cherries will pull through. Darian Matasafung, Global News. We love cherries. We love cherries. We love all the fruit out there and the wine, and it's tough to see it oh, struggle. But if you eat too many cherries, they won't love you. No, that's no. true. I that's found true. that. Oh, can I make a quick correction? I said Yvonne yeah. Gulagon, 81. She won Wimbledon in 80, so I was one year off. Ah. Love his young man. That. Yes. Uncharacteristic mistake from Squire Barnes. Uh, no mistakes in the weather forecast, though. Let's check in with Yvonne once more. Uh, it's another warm one tomorrow, especially with the humidex. It'll feel like 28 degrees. We could see more cloud cover tomorrow night, a bit of drizzle, then it rebounds, hot and sunny towards the weekend, and still seeing some heat warnings into the interior, at least until Wednesday. Careful out there. For sure. Thanks very much, Yvonne. Thanks for watching, everyone. See you tomorrow. Good night, all.